Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series in the book of Matthew today called Mysteries of the Kingdom. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, verses 36 to 43, as Dr. John brings us a message entitled Satan's War Against the Kingdom. I have on more than one occasion heard criticisms about the Old Testament, you know, that it contains so much violence and so much bloodshed and so many wars, so much conflict. And then every once in a while, I'll hear someone say, well, thankfully, the New Testament isn't like that. Jesus came to preach peace and reconciliation. And the implication is, I think in the minds of some, that the New Testament is really a different kind of a book, thankfully, delivering us from a very hostile Old Testament. I know that this is the assumption in the minds of many people, but is that really true? You know, in Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said, do not think I have come to bring peace, but a sword. Indeed, rightfully understood, Jesus is the most divisive figure the human race has ever seen. Now, when I say that Jesus is the most divisive person the human race has ever seen, I don't mean to say that he deliberately seeks to create conflict for people. I mean, please remember, that while he was being nailed to the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And please also remember that Jesus himself preached, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Now, that's all true. But at the same time, Jesus uttered condemnation of the Pharisees. Well, let's let him speak for himself. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs. Outside, you're quite presentable, but inside you're full of dead men's bones full of hypocrisy and and lawlessness. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Yep, that's Jesus speaking. Are you surprised? Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed the dichotomy. Sometimes Jesus treats his enemies with such grace as when men are nailing him to the cross. And at other times, as in the case of his conflict with the Pharisees, while he treats them with disdain. Now, what's the explanation of that? And is Jesus the man of peace or the great divisive force in the human race? Well, the answer is that he's both at the very same time. But this is one of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Well, two days ago, we listened as Jesus told a parable, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. We learned that this is one of the seven parables of Matthew 13, telling us what the kingdom of heaven is like in the present hour. But in the case of the parable of the wheat and the weeds, we learned that the kingdom of heaven has enemies. Indeed, these enemies are of the worst kind. You know, unlike two armies meeting on the field of battle, a battle in which one can quickly distinguish the two opposing sides, this is far more complex. The weeds planted by the enemy into the landowner's field, while at first they appear to look just like the weed. But indeed, they're poisonous plants and they're meant to destroy the harvest. And that was the parable that Jesus told. But Matthew tells us that when Jesus was alone with his disciples, they asked him what the parable meant. So let's listen to his answer. It's found in Matthew 13, 36 to 43. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. 
The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. See, that's the explanation to the parable. But what does it mean, and and what does this have to do with the kingdom? And so, meeting privately with his disciples, Jesus is explaining it to them. The landowner, the one who sows the seed, is the Son of Man. Now, Jesus often refers to himself as the Son of Man, and he does that for a very important reason. He was referring to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and that's where Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus was completely sure of his identity. He was that one who would rule all nations with an everlasting dominion. He's he's the king of the entire earth. And when he enters the world, he has come to reign. That much is certain. Jesus is completely sure of who he is. And so Jesus identifies himself as the key player in his parable. Next, he's the one who goes out and sows seed. Now, in the parable of the four soils or the parable of the sower, do you remember it? The seed in that parable is the gospel that Jesus was preaching. But now, please notice in this parable, that is the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the seed along with the crop that comes are the sons of the kingdom. That is, in this parable, Jesus envisions himself planting his followers into the world. They're his sons in the sense that they've heard his message, they've surrendered to him as their king, and now... They're on mission for their king. They're bringing his message to the world. Now, please remember that that's in keeping with the entire book of Matthew. You know, Matthew ends chapter 28. Jesus will command his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. That is, enter into the field. That's the world. Make converts. You know, that part of the parable is what should have been breathtaking to the disciples. The field where he's planting his sons and daughters is not Israel. Not even the Roman Empire. No, that vision, it's far too small. Field is the world. That's the vision God showed to Daniel. The Son of Man is receiving a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Yeah, Jesus has come to set up his kingdom and his rule in this world. But we need to stop and consider the image. Jesus has in mind in this present time, that he would expand his kingdom not by sending out armies or commanding angels to destroy human kingdoms, but by planting his sons and daughters throughout the world. So we might say that instead of using his power to overthrow the Romans, he's planting his followers into the Roman Empire, into the hearts of all nations, and he's subverting them all for his kingdom. They are his advance guard, signaling the beginning of a change from the kingdoms of this world to the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, that tells us that Christ is changing the world right now. Right now, he is doing it through the sons and daughters whom he has sent into the earth. That's an important point. In the present hour, Jesus will not be overthrowing the power structures of this earth. No, no. His followers will be meek, 
but they will eventually inherit the earth. They will be the salt of the earth. They're going to be the light of the world. They will seem like sheep in the middle of a pack of wolves. Their task is not to overthrow, but to declare the message of Jesus. The plan was was difficult for the disciples to understand. But even after the disciples heard this parable, at that point in time, they still didn't get it. Because as you know, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, they asked him if this was the time finally when he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And he responded that the timing on that one was not for them to know. Instead, they were to fan out over the world and preach the gospel to everyone. They would go and raise up disciples and plant churches everywhere. That was the plan of the kingdom. That would change the world. And this is how the kingdom would work in this hour. Now, as hazy as all of that was to the disciples, it seems the genius of this was not missed by the enemy of the Son of Man. He knows how effective this is going to be. When people in this earth hear of the plan to have their sins forgiven and to be reconciled with God, to be made into the the sons and daughters of the kingdom of heaven, I mean, that's going to result in a huge, in in a worldwide harvest. And so, the devil, realizing this is underfoot, has a counter plan. He's going to sow his own seed right among the sons and the daughters of the king. They're going to look like the followers of Jesus, but they're going to be poisonous. See, we are now at this point in the parable where Bible teachers strongly disagree about what Jesus actually meant right here. See, some people argue this parable means to teach us that within the church, there's a mixture of the sons of the evil one and the sons of the kingdom. But others argue, you know, that's not the correct interpretation at all. They point out, according to verse 38, that the field is the world and not the church. Besides, say these Bible teachers, the command not to pull out weeds, well, if that's applied to the church, well, that would mean that we wouldn't exercise church discipline. We don't do anything to to stop false teachers from coming in and, and teaching the church in a false way. You see, that's not what Jesus is talking about. So we have to ask ourselves precisely at this moment, how are we to understand this parable? What does Jesus actually mean? How will you begin 2019? And when the year comes to a conclusion, what will you look back on to know that you've earnestly pursued God, you've witnessed His power, experienced His love, and declared His praise? Well, Back to the Bible Canada is a Bible teaching ministry not intended simply to change minds, but hearts, and to call God's people to live lives that glorify Him. This new year, we continue to search out God's will and purpose to embrace new opportunities for declaring His word of truth and freely share Bible teaching resources that engage the mind, heart, and spirit. Our prayers that you would journey with us with your prayers, your encouragement, and your financial support. Together, working to share God's word of truth and life. Call us today with your gift or for more information about all the ministry resources available to you, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. A number of Bible teachers argue that all this parable was intended to teach is that in this present age, that is, before Christ comes back a second time, the righteous and the unrighteous will be called upon to live side by side. But is that interpretation of this parable adequate? 
You know, for instance, if all Jesus was teaching us is that believers and unbelievers are to live side by side, well, then why did he tell the parable the way that he did? I mean, wouldn't he have been better off to tell us a parable that goes something, well, like this? An enemy of the king sowed weeds in the field. Then the good farmer, carrying about the field, sowed good seed among the weeds, allowing both of them to grow together. And I say that because, you know, in the parable that Jesus told, that is, the way Jesus taught it, the sons of the kingdom were sown first, and then, and only then after that, come the sons of the evil one. And furthermore, the sons of the evil one, well, they look just like the sons of the kingdom. And according to Jesus, he will root out of his kingdom, notice, out of his kingdom and not out of the world, all causes of evil. You know, remember verse 41, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Now, it does seem to me that the point of the parable is that for a period of time, Satan will sow people among the true believers that are going to look like believers, but who are actually the sons and daughters of Satan. So how do we understand this parable? You know, I think a key to this parable is to identify the sons of the evil one. I mean, who are they? Now, there are some who argue that in some fashion, all non-Christians are identified as the sons of the evil one. Well, is that so? Well, 1 John 5, 19 says, we know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But please notice, there's a difference between being under the dark Lord's power and being one of the dark Lord's sons, you see? Just because you're under the reign of an evil man doesn't mean you're his son or daughter. All right, but what about 1 John 3, verse 10? There we read, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. But before we jump to a conclusion, let's consider the context. The point of much of 1 John 3 is to help believers identify those in the fellowship of believers who claim to be Christians but make a practice of sinning. That is, they sin without regret. They sin without the impulse towards repentance and purity. They are content to remain in their sin. And according to John, believers should come to recognize that there will be those who claim to be Christians but who make a practice of sinning who are also unloving to fellow believers, who cause divisions, who don't abide in the commands of Christ. Those aren't believers. They're the children of the devil, says John. That's what 1 John 3 verse 10 teaches. It doesn't teach us that all non-Christians are the children of the devil. The Bible never teaches that. But it does teach that the devil has sons and daughters that he places among true believers. This is where discernment is needed. You need discernment to know who it is who pretends to be a follower of Jesus and yet pursues a life of darkness, pleasing to their master in hell, and who have been sent to disrupt the harvest. So again, John is not making a statement about all unbelievers out there. Instead, John is helping to identify the weeds, the the darnel, the seed planted by the devil in the middle of a believing community. You know, as far as I know, the phrase son of the devil or son of the evil one is only reserved for a select group of people. You remember Paul's first missionary journey. The very first stop in the very first missionary journey was on the island Cyprus. There was a high government official there. He was a man named Sergius Paulus. And Paul was telling him the gospel. 
And as he does so, there's a Jewish false prophet there, a man who, as Paul spoke, contradicted everything that Paul said. Here then is Paul's response in Acts 13, verse 10. He says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And so it seems to me the title, son of the devil or son of the evil one, is reserved for those who masquerade as Christians or who are false prophets. See, according to Jesus, these people are born of Satan in as much a manner as a believer is born of the Spirit. So here's what I see. Christ is changing the world right now by placing his believers all over the world and their salt and light. And Satan, seeing the effectiveness of that program, responds by infiltrating the people of God and confusing the people of God. His work is to create counterfeit believers who cause sin. They're lawbreakers. And who does it include? Well, and certainly it does include false teachers. It includes people who deliberately bring division among God's people. That's what Jesus meant in verse 41 when he mentions people who cause sin. That is, they incite it wherever they go. They bring more disgrace to God's people than any pagan could ever do. Satan has his followers in the pulpits all over the world. He has his followers among elders and among church leaders. In Acts 20, verse 30, Paul warns the elders of the church in Ephesus that among their own selves, false prophets would arise. And so Satan, if he can, will bring his people into leadership of a local church. Satan knows the power of the church, and so it is within the church that he works best. You know, it's one thing to bring persecution from the outside. It's quite another to bring it from within. And why did Jesus say the field was the world? That's because it was in the world that he was going to plant his followers. But why then, when he told the parable in the first place, did he command that one should not root out the weeds and so bring harm to the wheat? So let's be clear. Whenever elders function properly in the body of Christ, they watch over the unity and the nature of the doctrine that's taught in the local church. So, for instance, why did Paul send Timothy to Ephesus? 1 Timothy 1 verse 3 says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Remember the lawless man in Corinth who was openly committing sexual immorality. The leadership was to discipline him. That is, they were not to allow him to carry on in his practice, but if necessary, to remove him or to root him out of the local church. Well, okay, if that's the case, what does Christ mean in this parable? Let the weeds and the wheat grow up together. And how would pulling out weeds harm the people of God? And I've been pondering that. And and I was reading my old friend from the 5th century, John Chrysostom, and he had something to say about this. and, And suddenly it became plain. Chrysostom believed that pulling up the root was roughly akin to throwing them into the fiery furnace. And so he said, what Christ forbids us to do is to put them to death. Now, you might say, well, duh, of course we shouldn't put false prophets and those who harm the unity of the church to death. Is that all that Jesus meant? Well, think about it. You know, one of the black marks that will never be erased from John Kelvin's record, bringing reform to Geneva in the 16th century, is that he participated in burning the anti-Trinitarian false teacher Michael Servetus. It's a shameful act. It caused many in the church to stumble. It brought great disrepute to the Reformation. That's but one example of many. 
Satan knows all of this. And so he sows his people among believers, realizing that believers can make two errors. One is to tolerate evil people, but the other is to persecute evil people. Instead, Jesus called for a third response. The response needed is patience and vigilance. We must confront evil with grace. At times, the Bible demands that we may have to remove someone from the fellowship. But when we do, we never hound them. We, we don't persecute them. We don't join hands with the government to solve our church problems. Enough with the Inquisition and enough with slander and enough with false accusations. How many people have been prevented from coming to the faith or have had what little faith they have had destroyed because of the aggressive behavior of the church? It's the meek, said Jesus, who rule the earth. It's not the aggressors or the accusers or the power players. And so Jesus has revealed a secret to his kingdom. In the present hour, his rule will be a gentle one. He will plant his people throughout the world, but in so doing, the evil one will seek to subvert the building of Christ's church. We respond with firmness, but never violence. We respond with truth, but never with the arm of the flesh. We warn against false teaching, but we do not seek bodily harm. There's a day coming when justice will reign. In the end, the angels of God, acting on Christ's authority, will separate the harvest, doing what John the Baptist said would happen that wheat will go into the barn and the chaff, or in, in the parable of Jesus, the weeds will be burned in hell. Yes, that day is coming, but in the present hour, this will not occur. The two will grow together. John, there's a very real sense here that in the believer's zealousness to defend the gospel, there's that line between defense of who Christ is and becoming a persecutor ourselves. Ben, I think that's the sad, sad, sad history of the Spanish Inquisition. So now you have a very strong church that controls all the politics. And so they take everyone who doesn't belong to the church and they begin to, to persecute them. And so in order to, to defend the church, we find out that the church becomes the agent of evil. The church itself becomes the weeds in the weed. I mean, it's a horrible part of history, but it's something that should be remembered. And Ben, I think that, you know, when it comes to today, um, I think that we need to be very careful to make sure that we point out the errors of false teachers, but we better do so without persecuting false teachers. Thanks so much, John, and, and thanks for your message today. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The faithful, accurate teaching of the Bible impacts lives. Krista wrote, I came across Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld a few weeks ago when I was looking for biblical advice on a specific topic. And what a blessing this ministry has been ever since. I've listened to many podcasts, discovered In Doubt, and have recommended both to friends. I appreciate the faithfulness to biblical teachings, the depth of the teachings themselves, deep but explained in a way easy to understand. Back to the Bible is so appreciative to all those who help make the daily Bible teaching program happen. It's not one person, but thousands with a commitment to the importance of teaching God's word. Your gift, your prayers are critical. 
So please continue to support the program in your area so that others like Krista might grow closer in their walk with Jesus every day. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.